Okay, Hortense, thank you for joining me. This podcast is going to go out the week COP28 starts. So from your perspective, you, you know, in the context of your role within Morningstar and what we've previously seen come out of, you know, previous COPs, what are you personally expecting from COP28? So I think first and foremost, uh, nations are expected to enhance the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions. What would be great to see also is, uh, of course, from a, an investor point of view, is more detail uh, on these uh, NDCs. So uh, uh, how they translate in terms of uh, transition pathways, sectoral pathways in particular, uh, this would help investors uh, to see whether and how high-level targets are translating uh, into reality. So that's the first point. Second, uh, we uh, expect more financial support uh, to for our nations to accelerate the climate action. There will be a lot of discussions around the climate finance at COP28, including the annual $100 billion funding, Will rich nations finally gather the money that they've promised uh, to provide to poorer nations since 2020? And of course, there is also this agreement that needs to be found on how to fill the loss and damage fund that was agreed last year. Third, there will be also expectations around carbon carbon markets and prices. Uh, we need to, to refine the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which refers to this, to help nations reach their targets uh, via marketplace uh, measures. Uh, and, and fourth, um, there is hope uh, maybe that an agreement uh, will, be will be found around the future of fossil fuels. Last year at COP27, it was agreed to just uh, phase down fossil fuel. Uh, this year, we need a, a better compromise, uh, but uh, it's going to uh, to be hard uh, given how much vested interest uh, there will be at uh, COP28. A phase out of fossil fuels, even an abetted fossil fuels, is strongly uh, opposed, of course, by uh, many oil and gas uh, producers. You mentioned, you know, I'll bring you back to the loss and damage fund. So I suppose that was the, I suppose, the, the the rabbit out of the hat, you know, big agreement, you know, from from last year. So bearing in mind that that fund has yet to be properly launched and that we're waiting for even the blueprint of the operationality of the fund, you know, to, to, to be agreed. How hopeful are you about this year's pledges? Well, since last year, countries have really tried to figure out how this loss and damage fund would operate and where the money would, would come from. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bitterness among uh, poor countries about the fact that rich nations, which are responsible for most of the carbon in the atmosphere, are reluctant to fit the bill. After lots of uh, tense discussions uh, a couple of weeks ago, governments uh, drew up the blueprint uh, for a new loss and damage fund which uh, will be administered at first by the, the World Bank and financed by large developing countries, as well as uh, the US, the EU, and the UK. But still, much remains uh, undecided. We still don't know how much money will be allocated to this fund. And that's really the big question. Countries most affected by the climate crisis 
hope that the fund will reach hundreds of billions of dollars within a few years, which of course uh, will never be enough uh, to cover all the damages, but uh, th that would be a start. The US and uh, the EU would uh, also like to see wealthy and uh, high polluting nations like Saudi Arabia and China to also contribute uh, to this loss and damage fund. There are also uh, major disagreements over which countries uh, would be prioritized for funding, whether the funding would be dispersed as grants or loans, and, and there are also more issues. So uh, we, we're waiting for this uh, blueprint to be formally adopted at uh, COP28, uh, and it's, it's um, clearly an understatement uh, to say that the stakes are really, really high here. Uh, and failure to reach a final agreement could really completely derail COP28. Failure to agree on a blueprint for the loss and damage fund could derail COP28. Do yes. you feel? See, that's pretty oh, huge. Yes. That's pretty huge, you know. Um, you know, considering, you know, you kind of very clearly laid out the complexities, I suppose, and all the moving parts, you know, um, which needs to fall into place for the fund to, to work. But that's because it was a big highlight of COP27 last year in Egypt. What are the risks of that not coming together? And what would the consequences be if a, if a blueprint, if it, hypothetically, if a, if a blueprint, if the blueprint isn't signed off or agreed to, what could be the outcome of that? Well, the, the, the issue is that... Um... I mean, developing nations or the, the poorer nations uh, won't be on board uh, in going forward uh, to uh, improve on the on the commitments on the NDCs and and other things to decarbonize if they feel that richer nations are not um, are not uh, taking their responsibilities either. And bearing in mind, I suppose, previous COPs, this kind of bitterness or this. Um this level of cautious, I suppose, well, not cautious pessimism, but it uh, feels pretty justified, I suppose. Um, you mentioned before, um, in, in, in just a, a little while ago, but you also mentioned at the Morning Star breakfast briefing uh, ahead of COP28 about the risk of moving away from the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. I think your phrasing was, it will be a tragedy to see 1.5 degrees die in Dubai. Could, could you go into that in a little bit more detail? You know, what? how much of a risk or how close are we from slowly moving away from that agreement? Now, I know it's a planetary, an agreed planetary boundary, but I'm interested in why you brought it up and why you think it's such a, a, a risk at the minute. Yeah, well... <laughs> There is growing consensus that the world is losing the race to secure the goal of the Paris Agreement. Wherever we look, the data tells us that we are completely off track. Uh, current uh, national uh, pledges lead to a 2.4 degree world. According to our own data, uh, Morningstar Statistics data, the overwhelming majority of public companies globally, so 87%, of um, of companies are on a pathway of at least 2.1 degrees. So uh, the question today is, uh, should we stop pretending that 1.5 degree is salvageable? If it's not, 
because because very few people are still talking about 1.5 degrees. But we actually we do uh, still uh, need to continue to refer to that uh, goalpost. We should resist the temptation to move the goalpost to uh, say 1.8 or even two degrees, which by the way would still be in line with uh, the Paris Agreement. And why we shouldn't uh, give up on 1.5 degrees? Well, first, because it would reduce the sense of urgency. It would lead to more complacency and procrastination uh, from governments and policymakers. It would also cause the private sector to delay the necessary investments to decarbonize their businesses. And even worse, I think highly polluting companies would see it as an opportunity to increase their emissions. Investors also would decrease their investments in companies that stand to benefit from a faster transition. That's the first point. Second, 1.5 degrees is the level of global warming, which scientists say that is the safe limit. Surpassing 1.5 1.5 degree would have irreversible impacts on natural systems, and uh, this would have major economic and social implications. Asset losses would be much higher. Investments for adaptation and resilience would need to increase very rapidly. And third, scientists tell us that actually there's still time to keep global warming under check. The International Energy Agency also says that the path to limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees is still open, thanks to faster-than-expected growth in key green technologies like solar and electric vehicles, among other factors. Fourth, uh, it's important that we don't succumb to doomism uh, because uh, doomism can lead to disengagement at a time when we actually need to step up demands for faster action. Disengagement will only benefit bad actors that favor a business-as-usual approach. Fifth, uh, we know that we know what needs to be done, actually. Uh, accelerate the deployment of existing green technologies and phase out uh, fossil fuels. There is a broad consensus that uh, the obstacles to faster decarbonization are more political than technological. Governments need to understand that the cost of inaction will be higher than the cost of transitioning to a low-carbon economy. And pushing back targets will not buy us more time for the investment required. Are we at risk of kind of living in a bit of a sort of, is there a kind of like to live in this disconnected ecosystem where on one hand... There's growing, I, I take your point, but, you know, I suppose just the kind of the, are we moving towards a place where we're keeping the 1.5 target, you know, out of, you know, goodwill, you know, this uh, this conscious, this collective consciousness that if we start to move it, the, the complacency that you just mentioned and all the consequences that you've just listed will come in. But whilst people are kind of feeling like, we're moving to more to the 2.1 or or the 1.5 won't be hit. How do people really stay? How how can that kind of, you know, that kind of that belief, you know, stay put if that conversation is becoming louder about moving away from it, I suppose? 
I think it's that that's when you get into more like technical conversation around you know overshoot. Uh, we we know that we are going to surpass the one point five degree at some point, and even earlier than 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 expected. Sure. But we need we need we will need to bring back. We need to go back to one point five. We need to to at some point, either through carbon removal uh, or other ways uh, through technologies in 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 decades, um, in a few decades, to yeah to to remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere. Because if we are moving from one point five to 1.6 or 7 or 8 and and here you know every tenth of a degree matters we are saying to the world actually the world can take can take more carbon in the atmosphere when actually it is not it is not true we have we know that the consequences of even 1.5 will be dire so we can't we shouldn't let the world emit more carbon that will need to be sucked out of the atmosphere in some ways that we don't know how, you know, in decades to come so that we can bring global warming back to 1.5 by the end of the century. Sure. I suppose keeping in the theme of, you know, themes um, that came out of, that materialized, you know, out of the Paris COP, say, one of which was the idea of net zero. Um, I think that was one of those things that, you know, was an, was a theme, an idea and a conversation that became a strong enough idea to, to dick. You know, from your perspective, I suppose, what regulatory, what, what kind of regulatory changes do we need to happen now to actually achieve net zero, as opposed to it being, you know, a talking point or for it to be kind of a, a paper portfolio achievement? Because we need to do it in reality, I suppose. We certainly need more climate-friendly policies and regulations Governments and regulations have been a, a very significant driver in uh, the development and deployment of green technology across the world. Uh, tech standards and codes around uh, energy efficiency, for example. These have pushed uh, property developers to uh, build more efficient buildings. Tech incentives and subsidies, tax incentives and, and tax breaks or grants have been successful at promoting the adoption of renewable energy in many countries and regions like Europe, China, the US. Uh, the US Inflation Reduction Act is a great example of that. In Europe, there is also the, the Green Deal Industrial Plan. In Japan, there is a Green Transformation Program, which was announced earlier this year, which aims to unlock more than $1 trillion of investment in low-carbon infrastructure, over the next decade to accelerate the decarbonization of the country. So governments have definitely made uh, progress, but governments need to do more and they also need to do uh, things faster. And there is no time for backtracking on previous initiatives that we've seen recently in the UK. That's not good for businesses. It's not good for investors either. Governments need to follow through on the net zero commitments uh, we need more long-term measures that allow businesses to plan their transformation. And visibility about the future is absolutely key here. We know that uh, today, 
the obstacles are more political than uh, than technological. And uh, it's becoming harder for governments to come up with ambitious plans in uh, the current high cost um, of living context. And as we know, there are also some elections uh, due to take place next year in the, the US, the UK, the EU, and a few more countries. And that really makes it more difficult for governments, as I say, you know, to uh, stick to their plans and even come up with, uh, with more ambitious plans. Um, also, I think th th there's, there needs to be more incentives in the area of uh, sustainable finance. According to the European Central Bank, companies are ready to spend, but uh, the current financing costs are too high. And this underscores the need to foster the market for green finance in Europe, uh, which would reduce risk premium and, and lower financing costs. And, and this requires a combined uh, policy effort involving multiple uh, public institutions. And I suppose on the, on, the, on the topic of the difficulties that lay ahead and, you know, you've kind of touched on it a little bit there. You know, we've got elections coming up. You know, that's, I suppose you know that point that um, science needs better politics. You know, it's, the science is there. It's, it's crystal clear. It's, uh, it's often, um, you know, it, it can often be a lack of political will or, you know, the, the political cycle that sometimes can get in the way of things, as you just mentioned. Which I, I think before I let you go, I think, you know, it's, it's and obviously it's not a small topic to end on by any means, but, you know, this ESG backlash that, that we're seeing and the, the politicization of, of it itself, you know, in your view, how damaging has this been, you know, to, to the investment space, you know, to, to the corporate agenda, I suppose, trying to incorporate ESG and the climate agenda itself? I think it's, it's been extremely damaging although you can't really measure that the damage uh, you can't uh, put a figure on it and and I think uh, there are also different types of ESG backlash there is a backlash in the US which is political and mainly orchestrated by the Republicans to protect fossil fuel companies a number of Republican states have banned the state pensions from doing business with asset managers uh, that consider ESG factors in their investments. Uh, this year, uh, Republicans have filed close to 100 bills aimed at restricting the rise of ESG business practices, and many of these are still pending. Also, a consortium of uh, Republican state attorneys general uh, sent letters to signatories of Net Zero Alliance, uh, threatening them of legal action for using their market influence to enforce uh, the climate agenda, which uh, they say could represent antitrust and consumer protection law violations. Now, these are just threats. Uh, there are probably uh, no legal uh, teeth to these tr threats, but that's enough to spread fear and uh, make things more complicated for the climate agenda. Anecdotally, uh, we know based on conversations that asset managers in the US are less inclined to talk about ESG today than two years ago or even 18 months ago. Now, I think there is another type of backlash which stems from the fact that ESG is ill-defined ESG, as we know, means different things to different people. 
And while this has allowed the ESG investing space to grow fast and appeal to a broad range of investors and stakeholders, it has also led to confusion and greenwashing accusations. Adding to this confusion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has raised new questions. It has highlighted contradictions, inconsistencies, and conflicts between the E, the S, and the G. Uh, for example, in Europe, governments have reneged on the environment or the environmental goals uh, by turning to fossil fuels to reduce dependence on Russian gas. And the war in Ukraine has um, boosted uh, oil and gas companies also and their share price, which in turn has harmed the relative performance of, of ESG. And investments um, in ESG, as we know, are typically underweight in oil and gas companies, so that has hurt the, the performance. At the same time, renewable energy companies have performed very badly over the past uh, two years. Now, has all of this affected investment uh, flows into ESG? Well, it's difficult to uh, disentangle all the factors that uh, could affect flows uh, we've seen a decline in money flowing into ESG funds in Europe this year, but I think this has a lot to do with the challenging macro environment of high interest rates, inflation, and re recession fears. There is still a, a strong appetite for ESG investments in Europe, and that's reflected in the flows. So far this year, ESG funds have attracted $80 billion dollars while non-ESG funds have attracted only $23 billion. So that's for Europe. Now, the story is very different in the US, uh, where we've seen several quarters of outflows. And I, I, there, I think uh, there's uh, still this unfavorable, unfavorable macro background of high interest rates, which have, uh, of course, you know, impacted growth stocks more than, than value stocks, for example, which are tend to also to be underweight in, in, uh, ESG, uh, in ESG strategies. Uh, and renewable energy stocks, as I said, you know, haven't done well. So, um, so there are those uh, factors too. But the backlash, of course, uh, has also be, been a big factor in the, in the US. It's undeniable. You know, we started off by talking about expectations for COP28. I suppose, you know, what is your main wish? Not to make not to make you reel out, you know, a huge wish list or anything. That would be unfair. But if you had just one core genuine wish, you know, from from this particular cop, what would it be? I think there is one wish. Uh, there, I think it would be that they find some sort of agreement uh, on on fossil fuels, uh, and that's going to be extremely hard. Um, I don't expect them to say that fossil fuels need to be completely phased out. I don't think they will even say that what we need is uh, phasing out all unabated uh, fossil fuels. I don't think that's going to be an acceptable compromise of, uh, for oil and gas you know, producers. But, I mean, the science is pretty clear. We We can't continue to burn fossil fuels and what's extraordinary is that the oil and gas sector has been able to change the narrative from we need to phase down or phase out fossil fuels to 
Well, the problem is actually not fossil fuels. The problem is is carbon emissions, and we need to focus on reducing carbon emissions and not and not choosing among energy sources, um, so that you know they could continue to burn fossil fuels with the hope that at some point we'll be able to remove all this carbon from the atmosphere. Sure. Carbon capture is a lovely idea, but we need to move away from the addiction of, you know, whatever addiction there is to using fossil fuels and stop putting so much hope in the future and concentrate on the reductions that we can do now. Yes, and and, and we need to rely on the technologies that exist today, not on the technologies that, that we'll be able to deploy perhaps, you know, potentially at scale in, 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 in a few decades. Yeah, I think that's, that's that w- wise words. I think, uh, yeah, that's a great note to, to leave things on. So, Autos, thank you so much for your time. It was a, a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Crystal.